Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, fellow time travelers. I hope you're well. To help support this podcast, sign up to my Patreon site and each week you'll receive an exclusive video featuring a mix of history, comment and current affairs and it's all filmed at my home in Stirling. Last week I finally felt compelled to do a video about the subject of pandemics, uh, the Black Death and the 1918 Spanish flu outbreak uh, and I was thinking about how they relate to our current pandemic of COVID-19. Also on the site you'll find a whole archive of videos. Uh, there's one about the, the Spartan Warriors who inspired the film 300. Uh, there's another about the Battle of Britain. One about the Vikings. Another about Abraham Lincoln. Anyway, I'm sure you get the picture. There's a fascinating, eclectic bunch of subjects to get your teeth into. To get your hands on them, go to patreon.com. Search for Neil Oliver and sign up. It'd be great to see you there. Okay, that's the news about my Patreon site. Here comes this week's podcast. Cue the music. was known for more than once putting his telescope up to his blind eye and saying he couldn't see anything. And it's from that that we get the expression to turn a blind eye. In this episode, I'm walking with a hero of mine, a man moulded by the Georgian world in which he lived. He joined the Royal Navy and set off to sea at the ripe old age of 12, sailing the oceans from the Baltic to Canada. He lost the sight of his right eye during the siege of Calvi on Corsica, and the use of his right arm three years later at the Battle of Santa Cruz de Tenerife. He was swept up in a grand romance with Lady Emma Hamilton and became, along the way, a master of naval warfare, sailing to his most famous victory at the Battle of Trafalgar. I'm stepping out across Britain to discover 100 remarkable places that have shaped you, me and the whole world. I'm Neil Oliver. And this is my love letter to the British Isles. Hi Neil. In the previous episode, we stood in one of the most beautiful landscapes in Britain, witnessing a shocking moment in history as the highlands were brutally cleared. Where are we this week? We're in another stunning part of the British Isles, but quite different. Uh, instead of walking with people being violently forced from their homes, were in the footsteps of Horatio Nelson, a man who would leave a deep mark on the history of these isles. 
His was a life full of high drama and adventure, violence and great passion. But it started here in a local parsonage in the sleepy village of Burnham Thorpe. It's a kind of a who are we this week. It's This one's all about a person. We're in uh, the, the village of Burnham Thorpe in Norfolk. And that is a name that will resonate strongly with anyone who's got a moderate interest in Horatio Nelson. A major hero of mine, has been for a long, long time. I've, I've read some wonderful books uh, about him and I've been aboard the Victory. I did some live television from the gun deck of the Victory in 2005 at the time of the 200th anniversary of the Battle of Trafalgar. Uh, I was I was on the gun deck of the Victory with uh, with the first Sea Lord and Hugh Edwards from the BBC. <laughs> and between the three of us, we did some of the coverage of the 200th anniversary. So Nelson is a, it's a story, his is a story that I've been very close to for, I don't know, decades, I suppose. And I think the context for this part of the love letter is that, as most people who have a passing interest in the news, at least, will know that Nelson's one of those people who's been uh, dragged through the mire a bit recently. After long being a traditional hero of Britain because of his naval exploits and and particularly his victory at Trafalgar in uh, in 1805. For most people, generations of school children, he was just you know described as a as a hero who gave his life. But he's one of those figures who've been swept up into the slavery story because of his senior role in the Royal Navy at that time in the late 18th, early 19th century when slavery was still at its height and he's been he's been described by some people as an apologist for the slave trade but he's one of those figures who for me he, he was part of a Georgian world they, they belonged to their world and to judge them by the standards of our world is, it's just a mistake I think he's still rem- absolutely deserves to be remembered as the figure who did more than anyone else to secure the freedom of the ocean sea. He was in action when Napoleon was the great threat to world safety, certainly to European and British safety. And had Napoleon got his way, the operation of of shipping on the world ocean would have been quite different. But the Royal Navy was committed to keeping the seaways open for all. And Nelson's victory at Trafalgar secured that freedom of the ocean sea. And that's his greatest monument. There are no lines on the ocean. Nobody claims to own any part of it. The open ocean is is a free-for-all. And that is that is the gift, in short, of Horatio Nelson at that time. So there's a love letter from Burnham Thorpe for those and for that reason. It sits about a mile inland from the North Norfolk coast. So it's not quite a coastal location, but you can smell the sea. You can sense the sea. Nelson was born there on the 29th of September 1758. He was the sixth of 11 children who were eventually born to Edmund and Catherine. He was the parson. Uh, Nelson's dad was the local parson. And it's a beautiful little place. You know, it's, you know there are places where you can tell from the architecture or, the, or even just the building material, you can sort of get a sense of where you are in the world or where you are in Britain. Well, uh, Burnham Thorpe's one of those ones where the cottages have that kind of flinty look, you know, where they've used... Uh, you know, the knuckles of, of roughly hewn flint nodules have been incorporated into the masonry, red-tiled roofs. It's got that look about it that tells you that you're on the east coast of England. 
It's a beautiful and atmospheric little place. At the time when Nelson was born, would the area and Burnham Thorpe have been busy? Yeah, no, it wouldn't have been. It wouldn't have been busy. You know, we were in the mid 18th century. We were a rural population. Well, we were more of a rural population. The Industrial Revolution was yet to really have its effect at that point. It was coming. It was close and it was coming. But most people still lived in villages, still lived rural lives close to the land in a way that we've forgotten now. People were physically connected to the land uh, and it would have been much more normal to live in a place like Burnham Thorpe. It would have been a typical village with people living very typical lives of the sort that many more people would recognise than today where everyone lives in towns and cities or a vast majority of the population live an urban life. I, I suppose Burnham Thorpe would always have been a bit of a backwater. It's not really on the main road to anywhere and it, it would always have felt quite sleepy, but then I think most of England was. It was farmland and people living quieter village lives. Because his dad was the parson, Nelson was born in the rectory. And the, the building, the rectory that he was actually born in, was subsequently pulled down. It was demolished. When his dad died in 1802, that rectory was, was knocked down and a new one was built more or less on the footprint of the older building. But the new one is bigger, grander. The building that's there now is not the building in which Nelson was born. But there's a plaque on the wall of the newer building. It has on it the old rectory in which the Admiral was born stood 20 yards back from this wall. <laughs> so that's kind, of, that's kind of as close as you can get. But if you go into the rectory, if you get permission, and go in to the garden of this much younger building, there's actually a huge pond that Nelson built. And it's the oddest thing, but we'll come to that. Nelson had joined up, he'd joined the Royal Navy aged 12, which wasn't all that unusual by the standards of the day. If you had connections uh, and if you, you were of a certain kind of middling class, that could be achieved. Typically, in that context, Nelson served first as a boy under his mother's uncle. So his mother's uncle was already a, a Navy man. And it was under his stewardship that Nelson had his apprenticeship. And having gone from Burnham Thorpe, he was away a long time. His naval service saw him in the Baltic Sea, off the coast of Canada, off the coast of the West Indies. In 1787, he married his wife, Frances, who was known as Fanny, Fanny Nisbet. And she was with him. You know, she would have been posted wherever he had a land base. She would have been there while he was serving aboard ship. But then there was a period of peace with France. Britain was perpetually at war with France. But not long after they were married, there was an outbreak of peace, you might say. And the, the couple returned to England because by the tradition of the Navy at that time, if a sea captain didn't have anything to do, if there wasn't a ship requiring his command... They were sort of semi-retired. It was called being cast on the beach. Which is basically to say that he was sent away on half pay. So to keep his living expenses down, by 1788, Fanny and Horatio were back in Burnham Thorpe, back in the old rectory, which at that time was still the building in which Nelson had been born. He was a desperately ambitious guy. 
bit of a social climber as well. He wanted to get on and he wanted to mix with powerful people that could advance his career. So he had a long period of time where he was just writing letters and trying to make contact with the sort of people that could get him back into the action. But it was five years. He was five years cast on the beach, just living quietly back in Burnham Thorpe with Fanny, desperately anxious about his prospects. And it was during that time that he created the pond. It's a... If you look at it from above, it's shaped like a boat. It's got a square end, like the stern of a ship. And then it long sides and it comes to a point. <laughs> I mean, he didn't dig it out himself, but it was his design and his handiwork. And it's, it's, it's filled from a nearby river. Uh, and it's about 30 feet long. <laughs> this bizarre thing. So you kind of look at it and you can see where his mind was. He was landlocked in Burnham Thorpe, but you can see from looking at this thing where his heart lay. He was dreaming and thinking about sh things ship-shaped. He must have been worried too. Well, what are you going to do? Peacetime. The Navy, it didn't need fighting commanders because there was no war with France. There's a pub, there's a lovely pub, or there was a lovely pub in the village called the Lord Nelson. It was actually originally the plough. It opened in the early part of the 17th century. But in 1793, finally, Nelson was recalled to active service and he was put in command of what was apparently his favourite ship of all time, which was the HMS Agamemnon. And because he, he'd got the great news that he was going back to sea, he threw a, a huge party, a, whole, a dinner for all the locals. And he, he had it in the plough, which was his local pub. And then subsequently, in 1798, Nelson had one of his most luminous victories on the Nile, the Battle of the Nile. So he confounded the French, defeated the French at the Battle of the Nile. And when word of it got back to Burnham Thorpe, the landlord of the plough renamed the pub the Lord Nelson. I had the great good fortune when I was there, which is a lot of years ago now, the pub was still open. And it was classic, you know, it was all dark panelled, narrow creaky corridors, creaky floorboards, little snugs and booths and stuff. It was fantastic. It could have been in any century, really. And then subsequent to my visit, it closed, it fell on hard times. Uh, I honestly don't know if it's still... It had that look about it when I was there more recently of, of somewhere that was going to stay closed. But whether or not it's opened again, I honestly don't know. Nelson's youth and his childhood, they're, they're, they're hard to get to, but, you know, I suppose a, a boat-shaped pond and a pub bearing his name are, are very slight memorials for him, really, for such a, a spectacular character. You, famously, everyone knows the portrait of him with the eye patch and, and his one arm tucked away, and those were the results of, of injuries. He, he lost the sight in his right eye during the Siege of Calvi, which was a fortification on the island of Corsica, 1794. And he lost the use of his right arm. He was badly damaged, his arm, during the Battle of Santa Cruz de Tenerife, three years later, so 1797. Before his greatest, most luminous victory, he was, he was already badly damaged by his time as a fighting commander. He was always right in the heart of the action then. Oh, yes, yes. I mean, he was, he was notorious for putting himself in harm's way. He also absolutely believed he was going to die young. I think as a, like a lot of these commanders were, James Wolfe, whose statue is beside the Royal Observatory in Greenwich, was the same. 
They were convinced that they weren't going to last long. But then you can understand it because they were constantly in a position where they were in danger. The tradition in those days for commanders and captains and admirals like Nelson was to be, when their ships were engaged in battle, they were highly visible. They wore quite extravagantly eye-catching uniforms and it was their intention to keep the morale of the men up by being seen to be in prominent positions, facing the danger the same way their their fighting crews were. So he he was probably quite right to suspect that there was a, a ticking clock somewhere. But yes, he was simultaneously preoccupied with the idea that he would probably die young in battle, but he was also recklessly brave. He was forever at the forefront of the action. It was while he was on a posting in Naples after the Battle of the Nile, the one that saw to the renaming of the Plough Pub in Burnham Thorpe, that he really became involved in what really ought to have been and could have been the sort of scandal that could have wrecked his career. He met and fell in love with Emma Lady Hamilton, who was the wife of William Hamilton, who luxuriated in the best title ever. William Hamilton was His Majesty's Minister Plenipotentiary to the Kingdom of the Two Sicilies. (laughs) If I could handpick a title for myself, I'd be Her Majesty's Minister Plenipotentiary to the Kingdom of the Two Sicilies, but I don't think it's available anymore. So, again, because Nelson was ever of a mind to be in amongst you know influential, wealthy people, he came into the orbit of William Hamilton and met Emma, his wife, and the, the pair of them fell in love. Emma was a, was a colourful character in her own right. Before she married William Hamilton, she had been mistress to Hamilton's nephew, a younger guy, Charles Francis Grenville. But he cast her aside and with her heart broken, she turned to William and and they were married. Uh, He was 60 when they married and she was 26. But for all that, they were a glamorous couple. He was famously charming, famously well-educated, well-read, wonderful company, and she was beautiful. She was quite a big woman, Rubens-esque, but in terms of the fashions of the day, she was most desirable. And William Hamilton and, and Emma, they hosted these famous parties. She had had a background on the stage. She'd been an actress in the theatres in Drury Lane and such like, and she had this kind of um, specialty. She did this thing where she would dress up as figures from the past and strike poses. She was said to be performing her attitudes. So she would dress up as figures from Greek legend or or Mary Magdalene and strike a pose. This was a a form of of evening entertainment. There was no social media and television in those days. (laughs) People people had to find their own entertainments. (laughs) So so this, this this was the couple that Nelson befriended. And she gave birth to a daughter, Horatia. Guess who her father was? Their daughter was Horatia, while they were both still married. So William Hamilton, who was, you know, he was aging, aged by the time, you know, Nelson was in contact with them, and he seems to have known. And when he died, legend has it that when he died, he died in his wife's arms and holding Nelson's hand. So, make of that what you will. But I think it's probably fair to say that Nelson and Emma had his blessing. 
fact that he was having pubs named after him, did that mean that he was a celebrity of the day? He was, absolutely. In his own lifetime, absolutely. He was, uh, you know, people like uh, senior naval figures, commanders, especially those who had achieved victories were the, were the celebrities of their day. These were the famous figures, not sportsmen, not actors. Someone like Horatio Nelson, who had demonstrated such bravery and had delivered stunning victories like the Nile. Yes, you know, he was a, he was a legend in his own lifetime. Do we know if he liked his celebrity? Oh yes, yes he sought it. He was from relatively modest, a relatively modest background and he depended upon others to live the kind of life to which he felt he would like to become accustomed. He couldn't really finance it and so by having some celebrity it enabled him to move in circles that would otherwise have been off limits to him. Famously, uh, at the Battle of Copenhagen, which was the same year that William Hamilton died while holding Nelson's hand, but the, the Battle of Copenhagen was fought the same year, and Nelson's senior officer, a guy called Sir Hyde Parker, had put up a signal elsewhere on another ship, you know, the flags, you know, they put up, that was ordering Nelson to cease his action, stop doing what you're doing, don't attack. And Nelson put his telescope up to his blind eye and said, I don't see the signal. <laughs> and then went ahead and did what he wanted to do anyway. He did it more than once. He was known for flouting orders because when his blood was up in the heat of a battle, he just wouldn't take a telling. He just plunged ahead. Hence his injuries quite often. But he was known for more than once putting his telescope up to his blind eye and saying he couldn't see anything. And it's from that that we get the expression to turn a blind eye. Is it really? <laughs> yeah, Horatio Nelson was famous for turning his blind eye. So that's where that comes from, the, the Battle of Copenhagen. To get back to what we were saying at the beginning about how he's fallen from, he's fallen from grace, for some in more recent years, he was in operation when Britain was up to its neck in the slave trade. But as I say, he's been, it's a terrible injustice because by his eventual luminous victory at, at Trafalgar, and we'll get to that, I think, later in the, in the love letter to the British Isles, we'll, we'll be talking about the HMS victory and the, and the victory at Trafalgar itself. It was his bravery that secured the freedom of the ocean sea. A decade before uh, Napoleon was finally put out of action at Waterloo, by 1805 and the victory at Trafalgar, he was hobbled. He could command the land, but after 1805, he knew that he would never command the sea. And it was Nelson that taught him that. Why are they against him? Because he's associated with, you know, he didn't oppose the slave trade, but then no one did. Well, apart from the abolitionist movement, but, but the slave trade was, was, the, was the trade upon which the wealth of Britain was built. You know, the grandeur, we've said before, you know, cities like Glasgow, like Bristol, like Dublin, they were built on the backs of of the wealth that was generated from slavery. And it's by association more than by anything else that Nelson has ended up being tarred with that brush. He was in the Navy, so he wasn't transporting slaves, was he? No, no, the Royal Navy wasn't doing that. I mean, that was a private operation. But he was in operation at that time and he wasn't opposed to the trade. But then, you know, so many other people just took the trade for granted as well. In 1804, just before the Battle of Trafalgar, in fact, or with it looming anyway, uh, he wrote about Burnham Thorpe, 
from his desk in his cabin aboard HMS Victory. At the time they were off the island of Ushant in the Brittany coast. He wrote, Most probably I shall never see dear Burnham again, and I have the satisfaction in thinking that my bones will probably lie with my father's in the village that gave me birth. His father's church back in Norfolk, All Saints, is in fact, is indeed where uh, where his mother and father are, are both buried. But Nelson is not there. Uh, after his victory and death at Trafalgar, he was granted a much grander funeral. His remains are in St Paul's Cathedral. So although he had suspected that he would one day be buried in Burnham Thorpe, a grateful nation had other plans for him. In 1881, the Lords of the Admiralty presented the church, his father's old church, with a lectern crafted from oak from the Victory. It's there to this day, his flagship at Trafalgar. And the Nelson Ensign, which is a a flag, you would say, but technically it's an ensign, white with a red cross and the Union Jack in one quadrant, is in the church tower, and it's been there proudly and on display there since the first Sea Lord gave his permission in 1913. It's so often so poignant to go back to the childhood and, and the beginnings of these figures. If you go to Burnham Thorpe, nearby there's a there's a beach, a strand of sand called Burnham Overy Stave. And, you know, without a doubt, Nelson would have walked there as a young boy before his career began. And no doubt when he was back in Burnham Thorpe for his five years cast on the beach, he probably wandered up and down that same beach, you know, wondering if his career was over. It's so often, it's, it's, part of, it's part of what I love about some of these places. You go back to a quiet, forgotten, left-behind village like Burnham Thorpe and know that it gave birth to and briefly cradled a figure as immortal and luminous as Admiral Horatio Nelson. The personal stories of heroes and their exploits they really capture your imagination and touch you, don't they? Oh yes, I mean me and so many others. I think, I think uh, you know, figures that give their lives that last full measure of devotion, as as Abraham Lincoln said, of you know people who die in battle in that way. I think it's, I don't know, I find it incomprehensible that you could fail to be touched by by those who make that kind of sacrifice. But, uh, when it came to it, as, as I said, he was on deck aboard the Victory, highly visible. He was a famous figure, he was internationally famous by that time and the French sniper that shot him, that fired the fatal shot, would have known who he was from the distance, from the way he was dressed and from the cut of his uniform would have known and that someone like that gave that final sacrifice I just find eternally moving, yes. If you had the chance, what would you say to a young Nelson if you came across him in Burnham? Oh my... I don't think I would say anything to him. I think it would be enough just to catch a glimpse. A ship that symbolised the British Empire's dominance of the world ocean. Built with the timber from 6,000 trees, HMS Victory sailed into action in the American Wars of Independence and the French Revolutionary Wars, but it was at the Battle of Trafalgar that she became a legend. Next time, in my love letter to the British Isles. 
To help support this podcast, which is and always will be free, and to get access to new and exclusive history and comment videos every week, sign up to my Neil Oliver Patreon site. It would be great to see you there. Check out the Instagram account called Neil Oliver Love Letter. And please write a review of this week's podcast and share it with your friends. For further reading about these favourite destinations of mine, you could try my book. It's called The Story of the British Isles in 100 Places, and it's published by Transworld. Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the British Isles is produced by Paul Ratcliffe and Neil Oliver for Fat Belly Films. Music is by Malcolm Goldie. Social media producer is Oscar CFR. Additional research is by Evie, Lucian, Archie and Teddy. Finance is by Catherine and Trudy. Post-production is by Althorpe Studios and the graphics are by Paul Plowman. And special thanks to the people across history who have made and continue to make these isles such an incredible place. This has been an FBF Podcasts production.